You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, yet again, my co-hostist with the mostest, Paul Doroshenko. I can't tell you what a privilege it is to be with you today. Privilege and an honor to appear on this illustrious podcast. Well, it is. I just, um, you know, I appreciate that you do this. I appreciate that you put it together, and I'm glad to be invited. And you do most of the work, including coming up with the topics. And this week, I have no idea what they are. Usually, yeah, well, usually you give me an inkling at least of one or two, and you might tell me that you're going to surprise me. This week you haven't told me anything. Nope. I'm keeping you in the dark. Well, we didn't have time to talk, really. So we're doing this again as the, uh, as the remote uh, um, situation, but not pandemic remotely. You are at home because they're jackhammering in the alley right beside our office. And you cannot can, work in my office. You can barely function in there. It's, uh, it's very painful, and it's supposed to be done tomorrow. It's apparently TELUS running new fiber optic line, which makes absolutely no sense to me because they are going to be tearing up that whole corner in the next year for the construction of the building next door to our building and Robson Street, and one wonders about the logic. Mm-hmm. In any event. So you're at home. I'm in the studio. Here we are. I have no idea what the topics are going to be. Hit me. Well, this <laughs> week, Paul, we have a case law extravaganza. Three recent court decisions that all in some way or another impact upon driving law. Some of them on topics we've talked about before. So, um, you know, with the courts, there's, you know, maybe a, a, a decision or two a week about driving-related issues. Not all of them are podcast-worthy. I mean, there's more than a decision or two because, you know, uh, these these cases all deal with very interesting things that we've touched on before or had to consider in driving law and raise some important questions. I'm going to start with the first one that has had me so incensed, so angry, all week, and I did give you an indication of this because I was so mad about it. Oh, yeah, you did tell me this one. So we've talked numerous times on this podcast about intersection speed enforcement cameras and the uh, the speed camera tickets um, that people can get and their lack of an ability to challenge them. So as you know, when you get a speed camera ticket, your ticket is issued to you as the owner. So even if you're not the driver of the vehicle, you still are responsible for the costs associated with the ticket. Well, you could drag the driver down to court with you and present them to the uh, JJP and say, this is the person who was driving it. Yeah. I, I don't know that that would work. but It doesn't change anything, though, because no. the liability is automatically to the owner of the legislation. Mm, okay. So these speed camera enforcement people feel that they are a cash grab um, that they're bringing back photo radar, that it's completely unfair. And people are also concerned because the fines start at $196, which is the fine that you get for exceeding the speed limit in British Columbia at 21 kilometers an hour or more over the speed limit. So if you're up to 20, if you're going 70 in a 50 zone, you won't get in uh you won't get a ticket for 196 dollars you get a 138 dollar ticket 
If you're 71 in a 50 zone, you get a $196 ticket. So people who've been getting these speed camera tickets have been getting $196 fines. That might be some clue uh, for the general public about where the threshold for the speed is set. 21 kilometers at least over the speed limit, assuming they're... I haven't seen a $138 photo intersection radar yet. So it kind of tells you that maybe it's at least 20. So what's interesting, though, is when they send you the ticket... They send you all the typical literature that comes along with tickets, including an indication that if you wish to dispute the fine amount of the ticket, this is written on the front of your ticket, if you wish to dispute the fine amount of the ticket, you can file an application, you can send in written reasons along with your application explaining why you should get a fine reduction. Yes, and this is like right on the front of it. It indicates if you only want to dispute the the fine amount, right? It says if you're basically pleading guilty but you think the fine is too much, you can make submissions on the amount of the fine. Well, now technically it's not if you think the fine is too much. It's only if you have an inability to pay the fine. Uh-huh. Under the Offense Act, a justice only has the uh, the legal authority to reduce a fine if you have an inability to pay. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. The fine amounts for these tickets have frequently been reduced. I know that justices have been, you know, reducing them to 138 in cases where people who show up to court raise a reasonable doubt that they were in that range of speed, but they were still speeding. Yeah, well, then the fine amount's reduced by yeah. operation of law, essentially. But people have also been writing in and getting a reduction. Which brings us to the first case in our case law extravaganza, the case of Miss Gulo, who wrote in, said, my friend was driving me my car. She's not a very experienced driver. Uh, please reduce the fine amount. I think the fine is excessive. And $196 for a lot of people is excessive. That's a, that's a lot of money. Like, that's 200 bucks. It's like, what, two-thirds uh, of, or sorry, a third of your rent? In some places, I don't know. Um, it's uh, but it's a hit. There's no doubt it's about it. It's a grocery it. bill for a family. Sure, I mean it's a significant hit. Two hundred dollars is a significant hit, especially if you're on a tight budget. So she asks for a fine reduction, and it's granted. And without giving any reasons, the judicial justice reduces the fine amount to one hundred and thirty-eight dollars. The fine that would be the minimum fine if you're going one kilometer an hour over the limit. Now, it's not clear whether the justice is reducing the fine amount on the basis of the fact that she thinks that maybe the evidence, having reviewed it, didn't establish a violation of, of the offense, or whether she believes that um, that there was some reason to allow her to impose the fine amount for the lesser speeding offense under the act. She gave no reasons for that. Okay, so fair enough. The woman's fine gets reduced to $138. But then yes. what? The government somehow finds out about this. These fine reduction applications are done not in open court. They're done, like, on the desk of the Judicial Justice of the Peace. And somehow the government learns of the outcome of this case, that this woman is paying $58 less, and so they appeal it. 
they appeal it. So they file an appeal over $58 fine reduction because they don't want the fine reduction or they don't want this a precedent despite the fact that it's not a precedent because it's just done on a JJP's desk and there's no decision. Yeah. There's no Nobody decision ever written. Know. Nobody will ever know about it. So they appeal That's it. the government. They appeal it nevertheless. And presumably they succeed. I don't know what happens. Well, not <laughs> let's not even get to them succeeding in the appeal yet because it's worse. The BC government is the largest law firm, essentially, in British Columbia. They employ more lawyers than anybody else. Yeah. In-house, in-house. They have a whole legal department with hundreds, literally hundreds of lawyers. In order to advance this appeal, they hire a lawyer from a private law firm in Victoria that specializes in administrative law. Well, it's not really administrative law, though, is it? Well... It is, because it's a decision made by the Judicial Justice under the Offense Act. Does that make it administrative law? I mean, matters in uh, in provincial court are not administrative. They're, they're uh, beyond the reasonable doubt standard, and it's true penal not consequences. An that, and... Not an application that proceeds under the Offense Act, which is what this was. Okay. All right. So applications for fine reductions are Offense Act applications. Okay. Fair so enough. All right. They're subject so, to the court so it's a... powers. So it's a, a petition, essentially? They file a petition to... It's an application for a stated case, but yes. Okay. So tell me how it plays out. So they hire this lawyer. This lawyer prepares the application. They have to serve it on the school. They have to serve it on the office of the chief judge for British Columbia. Hopefully the, then... this driver didn't didn't bother with anything to reply. But... Because if they're only looking for $58 more, why would you spend money to defend it? Well, and this is the problem, Paul. Look, if I came to you as a client and I said, Paul, I'd really like to sue my neighbor because I loaned her $60 and she paid me back two, but she didn't pay me back the rest of the 58 Um, So can we sue her? Yeah, fair enough. You'd tell me, like, come on. It's not worth your time. It's yeah. going to cost you more to sue her for $58. Yes, of course. It's so not, the government the government basically sued somebody over $58. Mm-hmm. I, I don't it's understand a, the motivation. And they hired outside counsel to do it. So it cost them a yeah. little bit more money. Um, a lot more money. Well, taxpayer money. But it costs they, them nothing if they use the lawyers they're already paying. Well, presumably they felt that there was some uh, substantive reason to do this. I mean, the government has not just willy-nilly out hiring lawyers. They are willy-nilly out doing it when they do it over $58. There was no evidence led in the hearings this is some type of systemic problem. There's no evidence out there that, you know, there were 21,000 intersection camera tickets issued, and of those, 14,000 were disputed, and 12,000 resulted in a fine reduction. Any comment by the, uh, by the reviewing judge about the appropriateness of the government making this application? Nope. So Which, I think, like, if I were the judge, I would be like, "You're, you're serious, counsel." Yeah, but I'm, I'm going to be devil's advocate here, you know, because I'm an advocate, <laughs> and I guess I'm representing the the government being evil. I don't know. Um, you know, this is a, a something where I mean, I, I don't like the fact that the person is invited to make submissions on this. So I mean, the point here is that we see these people being invited to provide submissions, to seek a fine reduction on things that for which they cannot get a fine reduction. 
Um, this fine reduction was arguably an unlawful decision uh, of the JJP here in this case. And, you know, the JJPs may have been starting to do this regardless of, you know, what the government sees as a clear statement of the law that this is a, a fine that cannot be reduced. Uh, and, you know, they may have wanted to make very clear to the JJPs who are independent. Uh, they're not like a in-house adjudicator or something like that. They are a, you know, full-on independent uh, court. They may have wanted to make very clear to them that this is inappropriate. But at the same time they're doing that, they're doing the tricky thing, which is telling people you can get it reduced, which you can't. Some things you can. A cell phone ticket, for example, you can get the fine reduced, but you cannot get the fine reduced from a $196 ticket unless you establish that you are not in that range of speeding. So the government may have done it for a full-on legitimate purpose here, and that is to, to send the message that they can't send via a, a phone call to the JJPs, don't go reducing fines in circumstances where we have not given you the legislative authority to do so. But you know what's an easier way to accomplish that? A letter to the OCJ setting out their position, saying, you know, it's come to our attention that this is happening. We'd just like to, you know, direct your attention to this and, you know, do with that what you will. Or, alternatively, they could hire Crown prosecutors to attend traffic court to go to the actual hearings on the on the um, the violation tickets for intersection speed cameras, and to advance their view in court because there's lots of people who go to the intersection speed camera hearings and who say I'd like a fine reduction at the hearing. Well, I think they could do that um, not just on the intersection speed cameras. They could, um, if they want to secure some precedent, uh, they could go to court and. Um, you know, speak to police officers and say, look, if somebody's going to plead guilty and they're just asking for a fine reduction, then Crown Council wishes to speak to it. And then they could make submissions and then they could order those decisions. And of course, the court's not bound by a decision of the court at the same level, but they typically will follow it if the reasoning is sound. Mm -hmm. And if the reasoning is unsound, then appeal it. I mean, I just the don't like the fact that they did it with an intersection speed camera. The, in the intersection speed camera. $58 uh, on hiring officers. outside counsel. They could, they could instruct the intersection speed camera officers on their position, arm them with the case law and, you know, notes for an argument, and, and tell them to go make that argument because they're already there and their literal entire job is to go to court and deal with the prosecution of intersection cameras tickets. Like, there's a whole policing unit just for that. They could instruct those officers about what their position is. They could also... I mean, theoretically, they could also deal with this, you know, pretty easily by just, like, sending information to the disputants in their, in their package, put them in the face of the violation ticket, and say, fine reduction can only be granted in these circumstances, and then that material is before the JJP, and then they know it. I, I see, I see um, you know, two issues, right? I'm very unhappy about the fact that people are invited to make these submissions in circumstances where they, the, the law does not permit that. And that's, yeah. that's one issue. Okay, that's a separate issue. Perfect. And then, we've got the, this, and then we've got the second issue, which is how do you accomplish what you need, which is to establish that people do not have a right to this in court. And as I, you know, reflect upon my 
career as a lawyer, I've realized that, you know, sometimes I only see one answer. Uh, and there's another answer, and you don't have the objectivity necessarily to come up with that other answer. And you can explain your, you know, your logic and your reasoning uh, to whoever you've got. And a lot of times people will just say, oh, okay, that all makes sense, uh, because they're not necessarily sitting there thinking about all the other answers either, right? All the other possible ways you can do it. So it's, um, you know, we're, we're, we are uh, imperfect and we do our best, and this is the way that they came up with no, doing it. No, 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 no. See, this is this is the exact that saying. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. When you give a government the essentially the ability to decide how much money to spend on any legal issue they want to pursue, because they have, you know, they can spend, as you and I both know, because you litigated this, they can spend as much of your tax dollars on whatever the heck they want. And they don't have to clear it with the taxpayer. That's true. So it. long as, yeah, I mean, the only limits really are, are at the ballot box. I mean, yes, I did yeah. litigate this, and yes, I lost. Uh, you know, I tried to sue the government for not using taxpayer money for the uh, legitimate government purpose. Um, and, you know, anybody who tried it before had not succeeded either, and we thought we had a, a bit of a hook. Uh, because it was not just using it for not a legitimate government purpose. They were also using it for the purpose of advancing their party, which was the B.C. Liberals. And ultimately, um, you know, the, the, if you want to get right down to it, uh, the decision is that this is a political issue. You can expose the fact that they're doing it, and I guess we did expose that fact, and it did hurt the B.C. Liberals, and in fact, they may have lost one seat as a result of it and ultimately ended up losing the government as a result of it. But um, that was only exposing it. And the only reason we got the publicity, I suppose, wasn't, you know, we wanted to argue that issue, but the publicity itself uh, was the thing uh, of the lawsuit, uh, was the thing that that turned the tide on the opinion, which is really not the way you want to do it. Uh, you'd rather have a clearer expression from the electorate and having it being one seat on the basis of, um, you know, maybe influenced by a lawsuit that was filed that ultimately was unsuccessful. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not happy about that outcome. That's one of the things I was reflecting on recently and thinking that, you know, eh, there's all sorts of different ways to have done it. Wish I could have come up with a different way. I'm glad the BC Liberals were, were uh, you know, lost power and we learned so much more about their um, their skullduggery after they lost power and only because of them losing power. We would not have learned about those things but for the fact that they lost power. But if it was because we filed a lawsuit that that publicized it, that let, led it to that, I'm not that happy with that yeah. upon reflection. Okay, let's move on to next case law. Okay, next case law update. We have the case of uh, Regina and Predator. Now, this is a traffic court judgment, and it's interesting for two reasons. So the decision of Judicial Justice Adair on a speeding ticket, like case law bonanza, speeding bonanza, and it's um, it's two questions are essentially raised in this speeding ticket trial. The first one is the one I want to discuss. To what extent, if any, may a testifying police officer use a check sheet or memory aid while giving evidence? And number two which is something that we've talked about recently that we'll start with. What are the parameters of the evidence to be led by the Crown before the court can rely on a reading of a speed measuring device used to determine the speed of a motor vehicle? So the 
the court deals with this question and they look at, and you and I talked about this very recently, these cases from the BC Supreme Court that have suggested that you can, um, you have to have some evidence that the device is capable of measuring the speed of a moving vehicle. That it's being operated properly, that the person knows how to operate it and so forth. Not just that it's being operated properly, but also um, that it's that it's capable of doing that. And exactly. then there was, you know, a discussion, and you and I had, had a, talked about this case in, in a case recently from the B.C. Supreme Court that said, you know, maybe this has been overturned, and the court ultimately concluded, no, 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 there still has to be this evidence. It's still necessary to be to be adduced. And then we talked about the measure end in the following podcast. So in any yeah. event, so this is now J.J.P. Adair dealing with that decision, or? Yes. And he, he doesn't deal with that decision. And this comes out, this decision was released January 22nd. So after the BC Supreme Court case wrongly decides that the uh, officer doesn't have to provide evidence that the, um, uh, that the device was capable of measuring the speed of a moving vehicle. Oh, so Adair wrongly decides, in your view. Yeah. This is just released view. from the provincial court. It comes out oh. after the Supreme Court decision. It looks um, like it was decided per incurium. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's no reference to the B.C. Supreme Court decision. And he takes judicial notice, paragraph 20 of the decision, judicial notice of the fact that a properly working radar operated by a qualified officer doing traffic enforcement is capable of measuring the speeds of moving vehicles. Yeah, okay. Well, so it's a wrong decision has been released after the the... A decision that would trumpet in any event uh, and mm-hmm. the question is what are people going to take from it and will anybody try and rely on it will police officers try and rely on it I would suspect they probably will uh, yeah. and that won't work out well um, and that person could certainly appeal it on that basis if there is you know that may not be and there may still be enough evidence to convict them on the basis of what the police officer testified to however well this will be the problem with this decision. This decision will not be overturned, even if it is appealed, because although he gets the law wrong... He quits, he quits the... him on a different reason? No, no, no. No, he convicts him. Um, counsel in the case asked in cross-examination such questions as, right, and in some fashion, the, the radar device somehow determines the speed of your vehicle. Do you agree that is likely the case? Oh, so the the Mm -hmm. counsel for the person asked the questions that unfortunately sewed up the case for the... Yes. Okay. I hear you. All right. Yes. That happens. So that's a a thing. Yeah. Um, But more importantly... (laughs) It's not just a thing. It's a thing that happens (laughs) to all of us at all times. You and I remember (laughs) reading a transcript where the lawyer who had it before, who was a highly skilled, highly respected, and smart lawyer... Uh, unfortunately, you know, put his foot in it and provided the the opening to patch up the Crown's case. Not intentional, yeah. it just happens. And there may have been some other strategy that we could never figure out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. More importantly, this case talks about check sheets or memory aids. And, and it's important. I've litigated a lot in traffic court. A lot of my cases have turned on this question of officers refreshing their memory with their notes what's in their notes, and how good is that at refreshing their memory. In this case, the officer wanted to use a document that you and I have seen before, but the public may not have, called the Traffic Court Assistance Sheet. 
Now, this case, everybody should find it. It's on Canley. The citation is 2021 BCPC 11. This is fascinating. Does it duplicate the check sheet in there? No. It does. It it's does. attached as an exhibit oh, to the decision. Excellent. And it has the heading of the document, Traffic Court Assistance Sheet. Introduction. Constable Lenore Blanche for the, Blanche for the Crown, Your Worship. Take Bible and be sworn. Amendments. Make necessary amendments to the ticket at this time. I just Offensive. want to talk about the Bible aspect, but keep going. <laughs> Qualifications. I am a regular member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police presently posted at North District, District Traffic Services in Prince George and have been since May 2020. I am a qualified radar operator as of May 2012, and I was operating a Stalker Dual DSR radi- radar. I tested the radar unit by conducting an internal circuitry test, self-test, and then tuning fork tests at the beginning and end of my shift and found the radar unit to be operating according to the manufacturer's specifications. I used a tuning fork. Evidence. I was patrolling the area of Highway 16 North, at or near the city of Prince George in the province of British Columbia. I was driving the marked slash unmarked police vehicle, and then a space for a license plate. And there's gaps here for them to fill in the location, the license plate, the make and model of the vehicle they stopped, the license plate, the time that they stopped it. Oh, my goodness. The direction of travel and roads the vehicle was off. Their visual estimate, there's blanks. And it's handwritten in by this officer. So it was essentially a script for a script for testifying a script for testifying that you couldn't about... you couldn't memorize it no. unless you did it to song maybe i yeah. was traveling down highway 16 it was about noon yeah. so <laughs> he came yeah. over the hill coming at that's me enough. soon anyway that's, that's enough this is the script that this officer wanted to use in court and this is an old, old document. Like, it's not Constable Blanche that the name is on the script. It's Constable Peebles was the one who was, was doing this. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I've they've been it. using it for a long time. Yeah, I know Seriously. this one. Well, I've seen, I've seen variations on that same document, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And so the officer legitimately argued with a straight face that he should be allowed to read from a, stri- a script in court. Um and for a while, reading the decision, it kind of sounded like he was going to be allowed to. Um, like the the JP says, you know, there's more than half a million ticket violations every year. There's 50 to 70 uh, trials scheduled per day in 10 time slots throughout the day with five to seven trials per half hour time slot, 40 to 50 matters per day for trial or disposition. Um, and so the Offense Act, you know, authorizes ways that you can get around the regular requirements for evidence. Yes. But he deviates from that. And then he says, you know, the Offense Act allows police to act as prosecutors. So if the police officer's crown counsel, they can have a checklist at counsel table to ensure the evidence is being led on each critical point. Yes. Then he says, okay, but like, what's a checklist versus what's a script? And he says, in my view, it would be a cryptic list of one or two words each, just enough to remind this witness of the topic to be covered. Yeah. For example, qualifications, duty status, tested device, jurisdiction, identity of accused, highway signs, state of offense. Yeah. Date, time. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Description of vehicle, description of accused, description of uh, surrounding circumstances. But pe- most people don't know this, right? Like most no, people I know. don't know that you can't use these types of things 
in court. So there's millions of people, well, maybe not millions, okay, thousands of people who've been convicted in traffic court. Not knowing the police officer's got a script. Half the time the script is sitting on the table and they're glancing down at it. And mm-hmm. so often I'm speaking up and saying, you know, what's he looking at there? I'd like to see what the officer's yep. referring to. Uh, is if he's just looking at the face of the ticket, if he can tell me he's looking at the face of the ticket, and if he can say that when he's testifying. Yeah, mm-hmm. you never know what they're looking at. And, you know, we're in there and we're going to be quick to <laughs> object if it's going that way. But if you're self-represented accused, I mean, I, you know, I don't see the JJPs objecting in my cases, um, when I've nope. spotted such things, and I wonder what the police get away with when, uh, uh, you know, when there's nobody objecting. Now, JJPs so. often are very helpful to people. I've watched, you know, self-represented accused being assisted. Um, not always. Every courtroom's different, and every JJP is different, and, you know, you're doing your best every day as a JJP, but still, I've seen police officers with these scripts. Yep. Well, that's fascinating. So he was yeah. disallowed the script. Disallowed the script. No script for you, buddy. But nevertheless went through the evidence well enough and the person was convicted. Now, how are we doing for time? We're at 29 minutes and 12 seconds. And the computer, I'm sure, uh, I'm hoping is recording because the uh, it's jumping here in a way oh, that I'm not that. accustomed yeah. to. Yeah, it makes me nervous. Um, okay. All right. I just wanted to make sure that we would have time for our favorite portion of the podcast which is the ridiculous driver of the week the ridiculous driver of the week is it from florida it is i don't know if it's from florida it's from america no it's from texas close enough to florida so this man from Texas on January 22nd decided to steal an ambulance. Now that ordinarily would not qualify you for an appearance on the ridiculous driver of the week because like stealing an ambulance is Well we had stolen know, tow truck recently. So yeah. I mean it's not, you know, ambulance tow truck, what's the difference? Yeah, who cares? He stole he stole the ambulance. The revenge tow truck was pretty good. Yeah. This guy just <laughs> stole an ambulance ostensibly for no reason, and then drove it to a jack-in-the-box drive through And he drove up with the emergency lights activated and started placing an order in the jack-in-the-box drive through Well, I'm surprised that he could navigate it into the drive through Did he hit anything there, or did he just... It doesn't say that he did. Oh, well, maybe he's like... a heck of a good ambulance driver. Maybe he was a former ambulance he driver who lost his job and just missed driving the ambulance. Who knows? But the audacity of, like, stealing the ambulance and then driving it to the to the drive-thru um, so that you can or- place an order. <laughs> like, you know you're going to get caught. Yeah. Was it worth it? Was it all worth it? Did he get his order, I wonder? Um... His order was whatever prison was served. Oh, okay. That Maybe he just wanted prison food. That's why he went to Jack in the Box. Maybe he was like re- regretting his decision and he thought, well, if they turn around, you know, like maybe it'll be worse. Maybe I can just like get a snack first. Ah, uh, well, yep, that's a ridiculous driver. That's a uh, grand theft ambulance in the United States, yep. I think. 
Yeah. I wonder, I, what, I wonder what that gets him. I mean, jail for sure in the U.S. Jail. You're going to jail. It's, yeah. It's the question is how long. Thirty years. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. The ambulance is valued at like 150 grand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 150 grand Canadian. No, 150 grand American. Oh, I don't know. Is that what they put? Well, it's an American news story. So oh, well, I would there you go. So money is in U.S. dollars. Okay, I didn't know they put the price of the ambulance in there. Anyway, that's the price of an ambulance. So everybody who wanted to know what the price of an ambulance is, you now know <laughs> in American dollars. You heard it here first. Now we're at 33 minutes, Kyla. Uh, do we have another topic, or are we wrapping no, this one up? That, that was the end of our well, podcast. That was good. We've reduced good. the length of this podcast. I don't know if you've noticed. but Have we recently or just overall? Because it used to be we, about 40 minutes. Yeah, we, we decided to reduce it. To make it. Time. Okay, and we also uh, want to make it because Brandon's got a shorter trip to the office now. He's got a shorter drive. Since he <laughs> Our bought, one listener. He bought, he bought since he, he and his partner and wife bought a, a place. Um, anyway, okay, thanks a lot for having me on. Yeah, no problem. And if you have a driving law-related issue, you can contact us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or find us uh, on the phone at 604-685-8889. Thank <laughs> you.